Amen. So our text for today's sermon comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 3, and verse 1. So please could you turn there now. Now this time of the year, the natural focus of the Christian is on the birth of Jesus. And of course, that's good and right, because if God's Son did not ever come to earth as a human baby, then there would be no hope for us at all. But he did come. And so humanity received an amazing and undeserved gift. And I suppose I could technically end my sermon there because that's the story of Christmas in a nutshell. However, one does have certain obligations when one is placed behind this lectern, which one must fulfill in as many words as possible. <laughs> I will try to oblige. Now, you'll note that today's passage apparently has nothing at all to do with Christmas. And that's quite deliberate, but not quite accurate. I didn't want to go down the traditional pre-Christmas theme today because most of those passages have been done over and over and over. So I prayed, and this is the passage that came to me. And in obedience, here we are. Whilst it has nothing to say about the act of Jesus' birth, it has a great deal to say about the impact of his birth in a way that is intensely personal to every believer. So let's read now. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3, so that we have the whole picture that John is trying to put before us. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteousness is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Now we'll start with some deep word diving. This first word of today's text, behold, might just seem like an old-fashioned way of saying, look at, but it's, it's way more than that. So I'm just going to cover my mic up here so no one dies of fright, because behold here is really meant to be understood. Behold! It's loud and urgent. The Greek word used here is more than a call to just see an image. It also shows that one should have an understanding of what you're looking at. And here in 1 John, it's drawing us also to look at God's character, most specifically his great and amazing love. And it does so with authority. The way that it is written means that the reader must give urgent attention to what is being said. Stop everything else. Look at this. Ponder its significance. And it's also notable for us that the word behold is used here in its plural form, which means that this is a call to every believer. It isn't just the extra holy lady in the white dress who always sits right at the front and says amen every time the preacher draws breath, but the whole congregation, including that fellow Colin who is always daydreaming at the back. Beholding is a team sport. Now, why do we need to be beholden at? I can immediately think of two reasons. The first is the original reason for the letter. 
First John is not addressed to a particular congregation. It is a general letter to all believers written against some serious heresies that had started to affect the church as a whole. And the first of these was a thing called Gnosticism, which is spelt with a gnu, like I'm a gnu. Now, Gnosticism, in a nutshell, teaches that matter is evil and spirit is good. And if you apply that philosophy to Christianity, it creates some really big problems, such as how on earth do you fit Jesus as God, who is spirit, and Jesus as physical man in the same space? To resolve that problem, Gnostics in John's time were saying things that while Jesus might be God, he wasn't really human, because if he was really human, then he'd have to be evil as well as good, which isn't possible. And such teaching meant the death of the proper understanding of the gospel, since if Jesus were not a real human, then the price God required for sin would never have been paid, and therefore all of humanity would remain condemned by a holy God. And the other thing that Gnostics claimed, and this is the thing that we'll often recognize in them today, because they're still around, is that they, and only they, have access to a higher truth that only comes to those who are in on a special deep truth. Does that sound familiar? That wasn't the only problem philosophy around at the time. I'm not going to go into the others, but the point is that John was so alarmed by their potential to cause problems within the church that he penned these letters with the aim of reminding believers about the very fundamentals of their faith. He knew that big problems require an equally big behold. And of course his words still ring true today. As I said, the Gnostics in particular are still around today, and there are many other philosophies that seek to pervert the truth of the gospel. And so we need to be brought to attention just as much as anybody who read John's letter 2,000 years ago. There is another reason that believers need a big beholding type wake-up call, but it isn't because of external forces, rather it's just down to a plain old internal lethargy. Many of us here are mature Christians and lots and lots of years have gone past since we first made our commitment to follow Jesus. And for some, that isn't a problem. That fire that's there to serve the Lord still burns very strongly. But for some others, maybe that desire and drive and excitement is just smoldering quietly away somewhere deep inside. It's too cold to warm anyone. We may have become too accustomed to the amazing things that God has done for us, and so nothing really stirs our hearts anymore. Behold, friends, wake up! Do the work that God has set aside for you and specifically designed for you to do. We are all miserable sinners saved by the love of God, by the Son of God to become, as it says here, a child of God with all the privileges that go along with it. Get out of that bed then and go outside and play vigorously in the mud with all the other children. Climb trees, fall out of them, eat snails, fly kites. Do all the things that the Lord hoped and designed you would do. I think we've done the behold, but no, so, so it's probably time to look at what we are supposed to be beholding. It's indescribable, frankly, because it's a very, very great thing, worthy of this urgent, aggressive behold instruction. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. 
When you read this, you might be wondering why on earth the New King James translators had to use such obscure language. Why, why say what manner when you could just say what type or what kind? Well, the problem is twofold. Firstly, English doesn't really convey the sense of the words as well as the original Greek did. So we're already losing some valuable insights. Secondly, when we use ordinary words, they further reduce our understanding. So give those translator guys a break. They think long and hard about every word so as to help us grasp the full force of what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. And so often these cannot be everyday words. Perhaps some other translations may be helpful. Instead of what manner they say, what great, or how much, or what a wealth. But the very best for me is, comes from the Amplified Bible, which says what an incredible quality of love the Father has given. And also like Wust's translation, which says what exotic love. I like that, exotic because it means it's extraordinary, not easily found around here. And that's exactly the sense that it comes from the original Greek. Because that phrase actually usually means from what country. Now that might seem like a weird way to say it. So I'll quote a preacher named Stephen Cole here because he explains it very well. He says, it's as if John thinks about the Father's great love and says, where does this come from? It must be from heaven because there's nothing like it in this world. Nothing like it in this world. And that's absolutely right because the love we receive from the Father is agape love, the only unconditional sacrificial kind of love. It does not say I love you because you are my brother or I love you because you have beautiful hair or I love you because you've given me a Lamborghini for Christmas. There is no because, because, because. There is just action. Agape love says, I love you in spite of. I will act for you in spite of. I will die for you in spite of. Can you see why such love would have to be described as out of this world? Love that is patient. Love that is kind and not jealous. Love which does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own, is never provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love that never fails. Agape love. And that is the manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Think about that for a moment because did you or I ever deserve such an incredible gift not all gifts are so profound many years ago while we were still living in Zimbabwe just before Christmas a very large and exciting parcel arrived from Joe's sister and brother-in-law in England what could it be must be something really special now you have to understand some background here. At that time in Zimbabwe, foreign currency was really hard to get hold of. You couldn't buy stuff like that online like you can now, and things like overseas travel was 
so expensive we couldn't dream about it, so to receive a big present from England was quite a luxury. Well, Christmas Day came along and guess what was unwrapped first? To reveal a life-size inflatable rhinoceros. It was a spectacularly useless present, <laughs> and one I have yet to gain revenge for. Now, the gift of God's love is as far separated from that rhinoceros as it is possible to be, because its purpose and its reality is eternal. It doesn't get its shape from a load of air. It has real substance and weight. Its effect means it is possible for anyone who accepts Jesus as Lord to become a child of God, no matter what their sins are. And there is an official theological name for this, this act of God. It's called adoption. And just as we understand the term generally, it means that somebody who has no blood link or rights to a family is brought into that family and given their name and all the privileges of being part of that intimate group. So we have to ask, what are the privileges of being adopted as a child of God? Since we have the opportunity for a teaching moment, let's have a quick look at these. Well, the first is that instead of being God's enemy, we are able to speak and interact with him as our loving father. Now, this isn't the kind of relationship where you might want to check with your brothers and sisters whether your dad is in a good mood before entering his room. No. As children of God, we are granted the freedom to go to him at any time. And he will receive us with open arms. We can tell him anything. And he will listen patiently. And he will respond according to his wisdom and his will. And this isn't just a meeting across a desk full of formality. It's an embrace. We and the Father are brought close together by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 15 and 16 tells us that we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Next, it must logically follow that if we are able to have this internal seal of the Spirit and have this particular father-child relationship with God, then it shows that he really does love us. Because for him, there is no in-between state. There's only two possibilities. If you stay in your sin then the Lord is profoundly your enemy and he hates you unreservedly and you will reap the resulting consequences. But if you renounce your sin and follow Jesus, then God is your father and he loves you bountifully and unreservedly. Through that love, scripture informs us that he understands us. He knows how we are formed. He takes care of our needs. He gives us many good gifts. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And these good things are more than just the blessings that we receive during our lives. This has nothing to do with the song that goes, Oh Lord, won't you please give me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches and I must make amends. This is not a prosperity doctrine. In this church, in this country, we are particularly blessed. 
How often do you stop to think about the blessings received and quite possibly take for granted? Little things, soap, hot water, food in the cupboard, shops bursting with choices, people that, police that help you, don't beat you, a bureaucracy that isn't corrupt. You will find that it makes a very, very, very long list if you take some time to go through it. But those things are all temporal. They are good, but they will end when we die. The bestest good thing, the, the biggerest good thing that believers are given is that eternal inheritance in heaven. The next part of Romans 12 that I quoted just now goes on to say that if we are children of God, then we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. What do we inherit? A great internal inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, as First Peter puts it. There really is pie in the sky when you die. It's a very fine pie indeed. The benefits of God's love do not end there. Since he loves us, he will forgive our sins. And we mustn't confuse what I've said there with the instantaneous act of justification where at the moment that we kneel and repent and take Jesus as Lord, we are immediately forgiven all of our sins. No, this is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment clearing of the books as we live out practically that prayer that Jesus gave us. Our Father in heaven, forgive us our sins. Another privilege of adoption is that the Holy Spirit does not just live inside our hearts, but he actually leads us. Romans 8, for as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Sons of God are led by the Spirit. Through that indwelling, he gives us both a desire to obey God and helps us to live the way God would want us to. There is also a privilege that we probably wouldn't want if we were asked first, which is that God also disciplines his children. When I was writing this section, I started to say this is the opposite of his blessings, but then I realized, of course, I'm completely wrong because the Lord's discipline is certainly another one of his blessings. Hebrews 12, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. When the Lord corrects us, it proves firstly that we are his children, and secondly, that he really does love us. (laughs) It might not feel very much like it at the time, but a day will come when we can look back and say, Ah, I can see why you took the whip to me on that day, Lord. And we can also be sure that unlike earthly parents, he really does know what is best for us because he is sovereign and omniscient God. So far, the privileges of adoption we have been discussing have been vertical. And by that I mean they are between the individual human and God. But there's also a wonderful horizontal aspect too. Look to the left of you. John, you are my brother. Look to your right. Lisa, you are my sister. Look backwards and forwards in this hall. For all of these, all of these are really your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
They really are. And hopefully this puts a new perspective on how you might relate to them. Since we are family, there's no room at all for jealousy or envy or hatred. Instead, we should make every effort to love and help everyone who, like us, calls Jesus Lord. After all, that's why today's verse says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Not just you. You and I are one of an enormous family who have been blessed throughout the ages by the outpouring of God's love. That's fantastic. Okay, that's adoption. Let's deal with the rest of the verse now. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, my habit is to use the New King James Version for preaching and study purposes because firstly, it's the Bible that I was given by a dear friend and secondly, because I really like the clear way that it states things. But this might be causing some confusion for you if you're looking at a different version because compared to what I have up here on the screen, there is a bit missing. Your, your translation might look like this, for example, if you're holding an NIV Bible. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So there's this bit here that says, and that is what we are. Now apparently this is added or not, depending on how conservative a view you take of which the original documents you choose to translate from. I was able to look at 24 different versions of this verse, but only three of them did not include this section. But I'm pretty sure there are good reasons for both varieties. When it is included, though, I believe John's intention is to say that if we are called children, then it's not just an arbitrary name like Bob or Jane or Don, for example. It is a solid reality. Believers really, really, truly, 100%, through and through, have become children of a God in a way that is much more than just a name or a label on your breast. And that's an important distinction. My middle name is Brian. Spelt I-A, not Y, apparently because my dad didn't know the difference when he filled in the form for my birth certificate. In light of today's text, I could rightfully call myself David Bryan, child of God, Tastard. Now, there's two ways I could deal with that after having this name change. Firstly, I could just treat it as an extra label and carry on behaving the way that David Bryan Tastard has always behaved. No difference at all. Or, if I take it as truth, understand what it really means, I must change everything, because if the child of God bit is true, then I must behave like a child of God and accept the responsibilities of a child of God and do the work of a child of God. Do you see the difference? Do you? Good. <laughs> then live it. But don't expect those who are unbelievers to get why you are that way, however plainly you express your faith. As John writes here, the world does not know the difference between how sin makes you stand alone and how the gift of love God has given us in Christ binds us together in fellowship. The flesh just can't comprehend the spirit. 
And this is why you may have had or are going to have the experience of somebody completely changing their behavior towards you when they discover that you are a Christian. Sometimes that takes the form of merely avoiding you and sometimes it's active and unpleasant persecution. Whatever. However it manifests, the root of their behavior is a plain old lack of understanding. But if you think about it, that's not so very odd. Jesus came to earth. Really? Like an ordinary bloke with hair on his face and sweat and everything. But he was also exceptional. During the three years of his ministry, he did a lot of really in-your-face God stuff. Healings. Walking on water, casting out demons and so on. He was a gifted and wise orator. Intimate with the scriptures and able to explain them in powerful parables. I mean, how much clearer can you be about the things of God? How much closer can you be to God? I mean, literally walking with him and listening to him and watching him. Yet, as it says here, they didn't know or understand what they were seeing. If they missed the big show, it's unlikely that unbelievers will get the bit part that we usually play. So perhaps we should give up trying to explain things to unbelievers. Never try to say anything about the gospel to them because it's just a waste of time on a bunch of dummies. No, that was never John's intention and isn't the message here. We must always preach the gospel to everyone. The real message here is about being steadfast. Remember, he's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith and are wilting under the pressure to give them perspective and encouragement to carry on, carry on doing the right things, he's saying. Look at this very big thing you've been given, this mighty ocean of love that the Father has been pouring out on you so that you can permanently become part of his family. As one of his children, now you are different. Now you are other, a stranger, a sojourner in a foreign land. So respond to what you have been given in the same spirit with which it was given by the way you live. Don't give it all up because of persecution by people who don't understand that. It's a crazy thing to do. On one hand, you have this eternal blessing. On the other, a temporary irritation. Hang on in there. Is that so very different to our own experience today? You know, the human problems back then are pretty much the same problems we deal with now. Their names might be different, but they put the same pressures on us that John's audience was experiencing. And that starts with the right pressure, the right perspective on what we have been given. Consider the love of God that is spoken of here. Because that much of it has been given to you. To help you get the measure of it, I found this quote from a fellow called Alexander McLaren, who was an English Baptist minister, who actually came here to New Zealand in 1889. Because he says it much better than I can. We're called upon to come with our little vessels to measure the contents of the great ocean to plumb with our short lines the infinite abyss, 
and not only to estimate the quantity but the quality of that love which in both respects surpasses all our means of comparison and conception. Properly speaking, we can do neither the one nor the other, for we have no line long enough to sound its depths, and no experience which will give us a standard with which to compare its quality. But all that we can do, John would have us do, that is, look, and ever look at the working of that love till we form some not wholly inadequate idea of it. As McLaren says, this is a verse to come back to again and again because it isn't about some trivial point of theology. It's about something really, really fundamental to our lives as believers. If we get this bit right, then we will get so much other stuff right. Now, of course, we will never get its proper meaning in one go. In fact, <laughs> we will probably never get it. Such is the quality and quantity of the Father's love. But I believe if we manage to just get one corner of it, our lives will be so much richer. And since its greatest expression came at Christmas, why not start at Christmas with some exercise for your middle name? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how can we begin to thank you for the love that you've given us? It's not as though we did anything clever or special to deserve it. But you came and you just poured it out on us. And you continue to pour it out, it out on us. Oh, Father, thank you for that. I pray that as we look at your word, as we ponder on it, that we would gain a real and genuine appreciation of just what it is you've brought. And that because we see the size and, and value of it, that we put our head and our hands and our feet to your work and we go forward as you would want us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.